0: Well, if you turn in your Bibles now, we'll be uh, continuing in our book study of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. We'll be looking at what Paul writes here and the foolishness of humanistic wisdom. Once again, he addresses this or a continuing address of the foolishness of humanistic wisdom and not to trust in it. He gives here a warning and the reason for... No division in the church if there is a reliance upon the wisdom of God rather than on philosophy. And so here we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He has already covered a number of subjects in terms of division in the church and trusting in our own thoughts. Verse 18 is where we will begin reading. 1 Corinthians three eighteen. It says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Father, once again, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit and grant to us an understanding of your word. That we might learn to trust in you. Increase our faith and may we not trust in our own wisdom. For we know that your words hold life for us. In Jesus' most precious name, Amen. There's a man named Adoniram Judson. Some of you recognize that name. Adoniram Judson was a pioneer of American foreign missions. He was a pioneer to the mission field in Burma. He was very well known and famous in the mission world in his leadership and his impact. Before he became a missionary, though, he was a rebel. He finished at the top of his college class, and after he finished there, he headed off to New York City because he wanted to pursue wealth and fame, things that an actor or writer might pursue, because that's what he wanted to be. His parents were Christians, but he had renounced his father's faith. He's renounced his belief in a personal God because in his own mind's eye, his education took him way beyond that type of primitive thinking. And of course, prayer was something that was also foreign to him. He had been affected by a friend, a friend whose name whose name was Jacob Ames. Jacob Ames was a skeptic. He was a deist and a deist believes that, well, God may have created the earth, but he let it spin and let evolution or whatever it might be just take its course. But by the age of 20, he didn't feel right about his life and he became disillusioned and he became discouraged. He thought, well, I'm going to return home to my home in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And on his way, he decided to stop at a inn, a wayward inn. He had trouble sleeping that night in that inn. He didn't know anybody in that town, but he had trouble sleeping that night because there was a man next door who was critically ill and he was moaning and he was groaning in severe pain. It was obvious to him that his neighbor next door was dying, and he began to think about the possibility of his own death and whether or not he was actually prepared to die. And at times during that evening, he thought about returning perhaps to the faith of his father. But he imagined, too, his old buddy Jacob Ames and what his buddy would say to him about his father's doctrines. And so he simply waited for the morning to come so that he could just pass on and hope that all would just be fine and go well. It would be forgotten and he'd head on home. But early the next morning... When he woke up, he was checking out, and he said to the innkeeper, "That poor old man next door. How how is he?" The innkeeper said, "Well, he passed away early this morning, and he wasn't he wasn't old at all. In fact, he was a young man, maybe about your age." For some reason, Ed and I were asked, "What was his name?" It was rather a stupid question, perhaps, because he didn't know anybody in that area of the country. The innkeeper said his name was Jacob Ames. There was no mistaking that particular name, and it was his friend who had turned him against his father. So he was stunned because his friend had died and didn't even know it. He returned to Massachusetts, and on his trip back, he could think to himself all that flooded his mind was the word lost, lost. And it took three more months of intellectual struggle before he rededicated his life to God. And the Lord sent him off to Burma. See, because those who decide to turn in their own mind's eye to something else other than the way that God has prepared for us inevitably end up rejecting Rejecting the foundations upon which we live, which is the purposes that God has set out for us. Even Adoniram Judson, he had rejected his father's faith because he followed French philosophy. That was his philosophy for life. And it's those things that dominate our thinking, sometimes that are educated into us, that cause us to decide, hey, we're not going to live for God. We're going to follow our own way. In fact, that's how atheists are. You'll never find an atheist that comes out of a third world or developing or primitive country. An atheist always comes out of a place that has quote-unquote education where they've passed beyond those things that are of primitive things like prayer. those philosophical notions and false ideas that we decide that we're going to believe in ourselves. A number of weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, within the past couple of weeks, I saw a movie trailer about a South African soccer team. And the name of the movie is Invictus. Invictus. It's named after a poem written by William Ernest Henley, who lived in the 19th century. And that well-known poem, in the last stanza, it reads, quote, It matters not how straight the gate, How charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. The idea that we're the master of our faith, faith, the master of our own soul, clearly goes against what the scriptures teach. And if we adopt that sort of philosophy in life, we also adopt with it the worry, the anxiety, the stress, the sin... That comes because we are now in charge. We determine the course of our fate, our life, our future, which is clearly not true. And prayer goes out the window as well. Human wisdom ultimately is foolishness. It is useless. And that's not unlike, though, what happened to this church at Corinth. That's not unlike what happened to these Corinthians. These Corinthians, as I mentioned before, loved philosophy. It was the pastime. They would go and they would listen to some philosophy that was there. There were 50, at least, identifiable philosophers and philosophies. They had all sorts of people who had all sorts of ideas. That's why when Paul came to Athens, he came there, and they were interested in what he had to say. said, let's give Paul a hearing. Why? Because Paul had a new idea, and they were interested in philosophy. But it wasn't Paul's own idea. It was the Word of God, the truth. But here, not only did the Corinthians idolize philosophy, they put the philosopher up on a pedestal. And that is why when they became Christians and they became believers, they began to ascribe themselves and position themselves into various groups behind a particular teacher. I like Paul's ideas. He was such and such. Or I like Apollo's ideas or whatever. And there was jealousy and there was strife and there was division in the church. And as Paul reminds us in the previous passage, he was just like any other person. He just had a different part. They were merely servants of God. It was the message of God. And Paul reminds us once again that wisdom that comes from ourselves is foolish and useless. And so don't be deceived. For in verse 18 it tells us that. Let no man deceive himself. Don't be self-deceived by your own wisdom, it says. It says. Inherently, we tend to think what, that we are a lot smarter and wiser than we are, don't we? I mean, it seems to start maybe at the teenage years when suddenly we're more hmm, street smart than our parents are perhaps, eh? And then we begin to realize and forget things after we turn 20, especially after you get married or you get older. You start to forget many things and then you start to find that there are situations in life. Buying a home, having children, and suddenly you realize how wise your parents are. And so you begin to ask them a whole lot more questions, don't you? There's one good reason why you should respect those who are older, because they know things in life that you haven't experienced and that only life can teach. But don't we tend to think that we are a lot wiser than we actually are? When I reflect on my own life growing up as a boy in the church, I remember hearing Bible story upon Bible story, and I thought to myself, My goodness, I know all of these stories. They're they're one and the same, and the teachers that I had weren't very creative. They told the same story over and over. I thought I knew a lot till I got to seminary. And then I sat in class and there were other students. There are other students who are asking questions I had never even thought of. And professors who would answer questions I had never even thought of either. We are intimidated sometimes by the intellectualness of the world. One author writes in a piece called The Centerpiece of the Gospel. He's a pastor and he said, I used to struggle with overconfident intelligentsia while living in Boston. I would leave the town of Lexington, where my family and I lived, and I would drive past the towers of Harvard University, another mile down the road on the left, since the campus of MIT, and to the right, the campus of Boston University, straight ahead were the towering headquarters of many great multinational corporations. There were moments when I was tempted... To be intimidated by these unmitigated, unadulterated symbols of power. Here were great world leaders being trained in the business school at Harvard. Over at MIT, signals bounced off Mars every 30 seconds. In those towers, decisions were being made that created and destroyed the economies all over the world. And who was I? What was our congregation with this Christian gospel trying to preach? That's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were intimidated by all the talk of so-called intelligent people who said the cross is silliness. And Paul tells us not to buy it. It has never been true and it is not true today. God is going to show the wisdom of men and women to be rank foolishness. For the wise, the cross must be its central place. Unquote. The world for all that it has to offer, the world for all that it has to teach has nothing compared to the word of God and the wisdom of God. And if anybody wants to be wise, you turn to the pages of the word of God, you turn to the pages of the Bible to find out how it's done, to find out the solutions to your problems, to find out the answers to life, because the education of the world has nothing compared to the word of God. We can spend an inordinate amount of time, many times, learning the things that have little or no eternal value. Little or no time spent in the Word of God to study, to dig deep, knowing and believing that these words contain words of life for you and for me. That we can live in the wisdom of God. If we were to ask, for instance, if we were to ask your children, what's more important to your folks... Learning, knowing, and loving God and the Bible? Or learning, knowing, and loving more of what school teaches so I can get good grades? Not that one is not important at all, but what would they say in comparison? Someone said to me last week, you know what? I'm smart enough, they said. I'm smart enough to know how dumb I am. I thought to myself, that's a rather wise statement. Because the warning here is not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, not to be self deceived, because it's foolishness, wisdom, and the wisdom of man is. The word in verse 20, where it says useless, useless, it means vain, it means empty, something that has no value, something that leads one down the wrong path. I remember flying on a plane. It was en route to, I think, the Philippines. And I like planes. I like striking up a conversation with the person next to me. And I remember there was a nun there. And I thought to myself, how interesting. I wonder what she believes. So I began to talk to her about heaven and hell and salvation. And one of the things that she said, I remember, struck me so clearly was she remembered sharing. We talked about hell. I said, what what, what do you believe about hell? And she said to me, well, hell, there's... No, hell isn't a place that you go to. Hell is here on earth with all the poverty and the suffering. That's hell. I thought to myself, if that's hell, then what? Does everyone eventually go to heaven? To which she was very open to the idea of a universalistic salvation for everyone. And that belief has serious implications as to how a person lives. Because if I'm not, and my, my soul is not in the threat of going someplace like hell, then... Gosh, why should I live the way that I live today? But the church has always been fighting philosophies and ideas that encroach upon what the scriptures teach. It's affected many things in Christianity. Throughout the centuries, we've always been fighting for what is true against the thoughts of people. It's infected, for instance, many seminaries and Bible colleges and even churches. In the 19th and 20th centuries, particular liberal scholars would debate among themselves about various things. But one thing they did agree on was that the Bible was merely a human book that had good morals. It was perhaps somewhat divinely inspired, but you know what? Most of it, mm -mm. they dismissed the miracles and the things that didn't fit their humanistic presuppositions. The result was that they began teaching things that would undermine the authority of the Word of God. And the result was that seminaries would go down the wrong path and Bible schools and churches were infected. And that's why you see today many mainline churches, many mainline denominations that began to teach things that were merely moral but not authoritative from the Word of God. And that's why the decline of them is coming. And has been as they are leaking members here and there, left and right, because they don't teach that the Bible is truly the very word of God. It's affected church ministry in many cases too. When we prefer humanistic methods and it begins to sway the church off course, when there's a lack of teaching of biblical things, a lack of priority, a lack of emphasis on the study of the word of God. Many people believe the Word of God is simply not sufficient to meet the needs that are given today. One author writes this, quote, We see evidence of this fact and the fact that so many pastors and church leaders now doubt that Scripture is a sufficient diet for the saints. They want to supplement biblical teaching with entertainment and ideas drawn from secular sources. They apparently do not believe That studying, teaching, and applying the word of God alone is sufficient for meeting people's spiritual needs. And they apparently do not believe that preaching the Bible is sufficiently appealing to unbelievers. They insist instead that in today's media-driven, visually-oriented culture, the message must be augmented by music, drama, comedy, and extra-biblical motivational talks. Biblical principles aren't deemed sufficiently relevant by themselves. Numerous churches are replacing preaching with carnal amusements. Pastors who are Bible teachers who carefully and thoroughly feed their people in unbroken pattern of accurate, deep, clear and convicting understanding of God's word are more rare as time passes, unquote. And that's an apt statement. That is an apt statement of our time and the condition of many churches today because human wisdom puts people at the center, becomes a very man centered worship, a very man centered ministry, and it is antithetical to God's way. Music becomes more about, well, me, and how I feel, than about God and what He is like. Programs are more focused on entertaining than teaching. And worship is more about what do I get out of it versus what have I come to give to God? You know, it's interesting. It's very hard for me to understand that as I think back. I can't imagine that somebody in the Old Testament, a man who has come to bring his sacrifice, who has prepared his lamb that he has saved, the unblemished one for the sacrifice, in tow on the day of worship, Bringing his children and perhaps his grain offerings and all of that with his wife beside him. Coming to the temple and there the priest is. The priest takes the sacrifice and slaughters it and there is singing and prayer. And the man walks out of that temple saying, man, I didn't get anything out of that. I think I'll go to another temple. That to me is so foreign. But that's the mentality today of a consumer oriented Spectator-oriented, ill-prepared heart that looks primarily to feel better about ourselves rather than a, what, does God feel good about what I am doing in my life? More of a self-consciousness than a God-consciousness in what is happening. Because you see, if we've come to delight in God and to say, this is the day that God has made. This is the day I have come because all believers on this day have the privilege to worship God as He has set aside a special day to honor Him, to bless God, to bless others and to make God look great. As a wise counselor said to me when I was in college, he said, you know, what Sundays are the day. It is the expression and the culmination of our time alone with God when we can come and pour out with others praise to God. How special this day is. Not by duty, but because it is love of our God to exalt Him on this day. The primary purpose of worship is the glory of God, not the glory of man. Why did you come to church today? Why did you come today? I've always learned growing up, and one of the wonderful things my mother taught me was that Saturday was a day of preparation. Saturday night was to prepare for a special day, Sunday, when we worship our God, the highlight of a week. For ever since creation, God has given us a pattern of six days of working and then another day. Now, whether it's Saturday night, Sunday night, or whatever it might be, then the, we know Colossians speaks of various times and various places, but the fact of the matter is, do we look forward to a worship of our God? Because man's wisdom places man first, God's wisdom centers around him. Sometimes there is little confidence as well, not only in our seminaries and Bible colleges, not only in the church ministry, which has shifted towards a man-centeredness, but so is the area of counseling. Often there is little or no confidence in the life-changing Word of God, the power of the Word of God to change lives, as even Peter says himself, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I've been discouraged sometimes, even when people have gone to see Christian counselors who haven't even prayed with them or shared anything from the Word of God unless they're asked to. The Word of God is life. The Word of man, it says in verse 19, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. Verse 20, that they are what? Useful? Helpful? God in His Word says they are useless. Humanistic, man-centered wisdom offers to solve all the problems that we have. But to people who don't know God, they're foolishness. Speaking to the Knights of the Columbus Council in Baton Rouge, one of our Supreme Court Justices, Anthony Scalia, said this, quote, quote, Antonian, that is, Scalia said, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. People would look at this. They would look at this and say, You know what? The Bible doesn't have things to help me. The Bible, it doesn't address whatever I'm going through. It doesn't have enough what I need to live a godly life. That is foolish. That is foolish, they would say. But wisdom of people is foolishness. According to God's Word, it is plainly stated here. And because of that, Paul says, Look, There is no division. There is to be no division among us. There is to be unity. It's verse 21. So let there be no boasting in men, for all things belong to you. All things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world. Now what he does here, he says life or death or things present, things that come. He is presenting a figure of speech called a merism. And Amerism is this. It is presenting two extremes, polar opposites, to mean the things inclusive, all in between. All of us know, perhaps, Genesis 1.1, which says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we know that's not all he created. He created everything in between. That is Amerism. Or Psalm 139, which says what? God knows when I sit down and when I rise up. That's not to say that's all God knows. God knows everything that we do. And so here in this passage when Paul writes, he says life or death, things present, things to come. Everything in between, including Paul, Apollos and Cephas or the world, belong to us. It's repeated twice. Everything belongs to us. Now, in what sense? For the Christians, you see. Those who are children of God, we are called joint heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance that is coming and all things have been given to us. All good things have been given to us by God for us to enjoy. As James tells us, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Or if Romans eight seventeen tells us, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance. We have been given good things and all things belong to us. Now, the question is, though, when you look at this, how does this encourage the Corinthians not to align themselves with particular teachers? How does this encourage people not to be divided? The perspective of all things belonging to them, how does that prevent factions and favoritism? It does so by encouraging, by encouraging an appreciation of all that God has given in the gifts to spiritual teachers in particular, but to any particular thing that would be of truthfulness given to us by God. You see, God gave the Corinthian church a godly church planter named Paul. Then he gave to them a man named Apollos, who was mighty in the word, and he tells them, look, Paul planted, as Paul writes here. He says, Apollos watered, and each has its role, each possessed its strength, and each has its weaknesses as well. And the Corinthians were to realize all of these individuals were given to them by God. Each of them has their strengths. Each of them has their weaknesses. And not to say to themselves, you know what? I like Paul. He's into church planting. He is really into missions work. But I like Apollos. Somebody else might say. He's an apologist. He knows his Bible. I really like him. We should keep him or whatever it might be. Let's not divide over that, God says. Because each has been given. They all belong to you each to be given as a gift to you all of these things and the same principle applies for appreciating the variety of gifts that God has given god may have given somebody a greater gift of teaching so god may have given somebody else the greater gift of administration or of evangelism or of preaching some are more gifted in certain areas. Some are more gifted in the word of God, but they're very bad at working with people. Other people are very pastorly. They're very good at working with people, but they're terrible teachers. I remember having a good friend of mine, one a close friend of mine. Boy, he would come into preaching class and he would stutter and mumble, and he just couldn't preach at all, and he would just admit that. And he barely passed the class or something like that. And, but he is a godly man, a great administrator, full of wisdom and a great counselor who is working alongside in a seminary that I graduated from. A man that I go to for advice. He has a place in God's kingdom. So it's not to say, well, I like so-and-so. They're better at this than that. We appreciate those gifts. But to believe that God has given to us a variety of things to appreciate and not to divide over. So, in Corinth, many people perhaps liked Paul's sowing of the seed. Other people liked Apollos who watered the seed. But God used them in different ways. Everything belongs to us in appreciation. And our perspective of the world, our perspective of the world changes when we see things as God sees them. Even the life that we live here, we have an inheritance waiting. And we realize, you know what, our horizons broaden when we see things from God's point of view. If you've never traveled, for instance, to a a developing country, to live like they live. And to realize that half of the world's population lives on less than two dollars a day. A billion people less than a dollar a day. Then you realize how much you appreciate how much God has granted to you. Because you see things from a different point of view. And God calls us to see things from His point of view. To have the heart that He has, has and to see people. To see people as God sees them. So it's foolish to polarize and divide over people or foolish to divide over things that are inconsequential because God has given many things to us to appreciate and enjoy and to grow from. And so there's to be no division. And the warning is to follow God and his wisdom, not the wisdom of people, not to trust in our own selves, not to trust in our own strength. And not to allow that wisdom to infect the church or the way we do things or the things that we teach. I so much appreciate the song that we had sung a little while ago because it speaks to us. It is called Speak, O Lord. And the words are good to reflect on. For it says what? Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness. Then the light of Christ may be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes. In the radiance of your purity. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let their truth prevail over unbelief. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us truths unchanged from the dawn of time that will echo down through eternity and by grace will stand on your promises and by faith will walk as you walk with us. Speak, O Lord, as your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Let's pray. O God, we pray that you would speak continually to us. Transform our minds by your wisdom. Capture our hearts in the pursuit of you. And I pray, Father, may we not succumb to believing the world holds answers to life. That, Father, speak against your word. So, God, may we trust in you. Trust in your word, knowing that it holds for us. All that pertains to life and godliness that we might live by them. Make us discerning people that would trust and live by your unchanging word. In Jesus name, Amen.